I'm Lauren. I'm Catherine. And I'm Danielle. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, where we're unraveling the interconnected systems and paradigms that are holding us back from a just and sustainable apparel and home industry. Hey, Danielle. Hey, Kat. Hey. Hey, Lauren. I'm super excited. Uh, Today we're talking about circularity and the industry, which obviously is a massive conversation. But before we dive into it, just to give our listeners a little bit of an overview for people who are newer to the circular economy, a truly circular system is one where our products are made of recycled and recyclable materials, and not just from other industries, think food waste and plastic water bottles, but also from the textile system. And these products are designed for minimal waste, for long lives, and for ease of collection, sorting, and deconstruction. But before we recirculate these products for their raw materials, we use them for as long as possible in their original state. And ultimately, this system is designed to reduce waste to landfill to as close to zero as possible. The circular system is one that requires adequate business models to support circularity, which includes the scaling of new technologies, both on the fiber side, as well as in tracking, collecting, and sorting. It requires design for circularity. And it also requires customer engagement that enables collection of brand products for resale and regeneration as part of a robust extended producer responsibility program. And while we've seen a lot of advances in this space, there are also limitations to the current frameworks. There's no silver bullet and there's no one path to take. A truly circular system is based on recycled and recyclable fibers while using the original product as long as possible before recycling again. But this isn't quite what's happening yet. We'll get into it after the break. We're hitting some major turning points in the adoption curve for circularity. What's the most exciting circularity brand or initiative that we've seen launch in the last year? To really understand what's going on now in circularity, you have to look back about the last decade. There were some early adopters in the industry, Eileen Fisher and Patagonia among them, that you know, hopped on the train really early on when no one else was doing this. So in about 2009, Eileen Fisher started her first circularity initiative called Green Eileen, and it was a take-back program for her employees. The the brand has now built this into a full-fledged initiative that's fully owned by Eileen Fisher. It's called Eileen Fisher Renew. They've taken back a million garments in the last decade, and they're capitalizing on the resale of their own products which a lot of brands started taking hints from and started to notice that their products really fetched a high price in the resale market. So Patagonia with Warnware was the next early mover. And then a number of brands since then, and obviously companies like The Real Real have uh, taken this to the luxury market. But today, I think a really important tipping point and, and in the adoption curve is the Levi's secondhand program launching just this year. You know, handpicked vintage uh, Levi's and from customers, their take back. Levi's secondhand is actually one of the most important initiatives that has happened for the circularity market. It's one of those turning points for the adoption curve that I think it's really going to mean that mainstream brands are going to start circularity programs all across the board and not just taking back their product to downgrade it, but to actually be taking back their product to resell. And Levi's obviously fetch a super high secondhand value and Levi's capitalizing on that second sale is a really important indicator for the market. 
And um, their mar- head marketing, chief marketing officer is actually paying close attention to Gen Zers right now who already buy 60% of Gen Zers are buying secondhand clothes. So this is a really important time in the industry. I think it's interesting that at the same time as a major brand is launching a secondhand program or channel like Levi's, they're so ubiquitous that we also have Accelerating Circularity that launched at the beginning of this year, which is doing a lot of research on what is a regional circular system for the Eastern Seaboard. Um, So I think you're right that this time is a turning point, not only in seeing these major large brands move in circularity, but also see a lot of robust research going on around like, what is it actually going to take to create a circular system? Yeah, I think both of you are right. We are definitely seeing a kind of turning point where brands and larger scale brands are trying to really scale up this idea of resale and take advantage of this burgeoning um, resale market. We're also seeing more engagement in the home and hospitality sector for circular systems. You know, it's not just something that's being focused on in apparel, but people in the home textile space are also looking to move in circularity as well. And I think, you know, as we see more companies that are purchasing textiles in general, and in a lot of ways, home textiles and textiles for apparel can have overlap, and that that will also really help to enable the circular system more broadly. For home, Pottery Barn Renewed was a, a great, along with Levi's Secondhand, I think Pottery Barn Renewed launching this year as well is an awesome indicator that circularity is here to stay for the industry in, in both fashion and home. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, speaking to the synergies between the home goods and um, fashion brands, we see some, some fashion brands actually sourcing dead stock or upcycled textiles from the home goods sector and making them into uh, clothing items. There is an example from coming out of Stockholm. I believe they launched last year in 2019, Rave Review. And you can see they are sourcing old wool blankets and making these fantastic coats out of them. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for these two industries to work together and to kind of look to each other for inspiration and also for raw materials. I love that the opposite is happening with Eileen Fisher, that they're taking wool coats and making them into blankets, pillows, chairs, etc. So we've also seen a number of initiatives among luxury brands. And historically, they've primarily been focused on material innovations and have seemed to be a bit more fearful of reducing the perceived value of their products. Um, what do you think has changed in the last couple of years, just seeing the, the luxury market shift a little bit as it relates to circularity? Yeah, I think we've seen the advancement of circularity initiatives uh, towards resale in the luxury market just because of the exponential growth of resale. And I think brands such as Gucci or Stella McCartney are really wanting to just capitalize on this burgeoning market and really have uh, get a piece of the pie. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like the real, real being in the market, especially with the the branding and marketing that they're doing, has been really huge for elevating the the idea of secondhand luxury. Um, that like you go into one of their stores and it is a luxury shopping experience. It's not we were just like what there people last think week. about. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> dropping our clothes off and and walking through their stores. And I think they're really transforming the perspective of luxury and secondhand and continuing to elevate 
and also kind of create this scarcity around like these classic pieces that you can't really find anymore because they're not in production, but you could go into a real reel, for example, and find some like really special vintage Gucci or Chanel piece. Yeah. I really think they're viewing it as less of a threat and more as a market opportunity. And, you know, everyone is talking about circularity. And so I think this is really the low hanging fruit and kind of the entry point to circularity for a lot of these brands. But this wasn't always so. I mean, even five years ago, these luxury brands would have just balked at the idea of reselling their used goods right next to their new. And maybe for you know larger mainstream brands, even at larger mainstream brands, this was a really difficult sell to CEOs and leadership because honestly, they didn't even think that there was a big enough market for it. And we've proven that time and time again, that circularity is definitely an opportunity for their business. But they, they did focus more on material innovations. I think in the beginning when circularity kind of came onto the scene in the fashion industry, there were a lot of early adopters trying to do regenerated fiber and they hadn't actually wanted to move into to resale because that was scary. The idea of cannibalization was really scary to their business and also, you know, losing their own, their core buyers to their secondhand market was a threat to them. So material innovations are amazing and groundbreaking. And the idea that resale is um, much more palatable in the industry today uh, is also a huge innovation and progress for us. But that doesn't even address the elephant in the room for the fashion industry that we are needing to stay within a two degree rise in temperature by 2050. And I'm sure we all need to talk about consumption here too. Right. So the the fashion industry is set to use a quarter of the world's budget for staying within that two degree rise. And at the same time, the industry is set to grow 81% by 2030, which is a pretty astounding number. So the math doesn't really work out. What kind of impact do we think circularity initiatives will have on reducing these challenges or mitigating them? I think first, it really depends on how brands really want to scale these initiatives. And particularly talking about resale, if brands intend to offset their original sales and the production of new garments with this resale market, I think it's one way to kind of lead us to decoupling resource use with the production of fashion or the consumption of fashion specifically. So I think it really kind of depends on how we see brands scaling these types of initiatives. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's funny that, you know, we were talking just a moment ago about the fear from luxury brands and entering the secondhand market was a cannibalization of their products. And the reality is that we do need to reduce our production of new products to reduce the industry's impact on the climate. And so there's kind of been this avoidance of what we really have to do to stop having the negative impacts that the industry is having on the climate. But those can be in conflict with business models and conceptions of, you know, what sort of bottom line or growth trajectory is healthy for a business. I think the industry is coming around here. I mean, obviously Levi's in the numbers, they're always going to be making a ton of sales, but they are 
selling their secondhand program as the fact that buying a used pair of Levi's saves approximately 80% of the CO2 emissions and one and a half pounds of waste compared to buying a new pair. And we know a new pair of jeans takes 1,800 gallons of water to make. So I think that it, the impact really will add up as they scale the program. And it is kind of this meeting in the middle of consumer demand and the brand serving it up to consumers and both kind of coming to the table to make the system work. So do you think that brands that are launching resale platforms like Levi's and and others that have come before Levi's intend to make their resale channel a significant part of their overall sales? Sadly, probably not yet. I know in the past, in speaking with the brands that were the early adopters, it was always going to be a very small percentage of their overall sales. In the past, brands were just so careful with the threat of cannibalization that they weren't willing to let it have a larger market share and thus were promoting it only in certain channels and to only particular customers using it as a customer acquisition tool rather than a customer retention tool. But what many brands have found is that it doesn't actually uh, cannibalize their first sale. It's actually a completely new aspirational customer to their brand. So because it doesn't pose such a threat to their sales, I think that they'll start to increase how much they're promoting it. But I don't know if they'll ever really start to promote it in a way that will take over a significant amount of their overall sales. I just wanted to maybe segue into, I guess that's coming in later, but I wanted to talk about how resale is really only the first step in, I don't know, it seemed like a good point to say that, that it's just the first step and that, I mean, ultimately the aim is that we need to use regenerated materials more. And so until we have the technologies to recycle and we'll recover, sort, and, and recycle use textiles, it's, we're only a, you know, taking care of one part of the, of the chain, basically. Right, exactly. And it's, it is only one piece. And of course, it's an important piece. Reusing our products in their original state for as long as possible is you know, reducing waste to landfill. And then you also think about like the environmental impact that recycling textiles will have. You know, it's not like a neutral impact that the circular system has on the the climate and the environment. But like you said, if we're just reusing our products, we're only solving one piece of the puzzle. And it's kind of funny that, you know, we talk about that luxury kind of got into circularity first with regenerative fibers. And now we're really seeing resale and secondhand be like the darling of circularity for the textiles industry right now. And there are are obviously innovations that are happening on the regenerative fiber side, but there's so many challenges to scaling that technology and really having it proliferate in use amongst brands. Well, I think an important piece of this is uh, textile recycling technology that We've seen, you know, in development for the last five or so years, and there's a number of technologies or initiatives in the U.S. and also in Europe, but we've yet to see one actually scale. And I would want to know your guys' opinion on that. Like, what do we think is holding up this kind of development of recycling technologies? I mean, a, a lot of the time it was actually that you had this 
kind of external startup positioning themselves as as an external R&D hub for a company. And there weren't a ton of brands that were doing that uh, technology development in a scalable way internally. And I mean, it's highly expensive. It takes completely reinventing your entire supply chain. And I, I do think that there's, there's something about that. It, it took a, a huge brand commitment to both invest in the technology, the development over time. I mean, you know, Levi's committed to the first pair of regenerated jeans with Evernew way back in 2016. And I don't think they're going into commercial scale until possibly early next year. And so these technologies take a long time, even if they're proven to integrate into a supply chain. And that's um, going back to, you know, what is it really going to take? There's a, a ton more research happening, being dedicated to building out the nuts and bolts of the system and very few people have actually mapped out that entire system for the industry to be able to connect all the dots because it's incredibly complicated. I think we also see issues with, in terms of challenges to scale, just from a basic economics standpoint of what is the cost of the new technology, the new textile versus the cost of the traditional fiber that we've been using. And for a lot of brands, until we see an a financial model that makes sense. I'm not sure we're going to see a proliferation of these technologies. And so that kind of leads into the need for more collective action around regenerative fiber technologies. Like if if brands aren't willing to move together and as a group or a cohort commit to purchasing a new fiber, you're not going to see the cost of that fiber go down. And if you don't see the cost of that fiber go down, then it's not going to scale. And it's kind of a loop that spirals down and down and down that no one really wants to hop into. But if no one moves, if no one's willing to move together, then we're not going to see it succeed. The irony is that we've chosen polyester to be our first proof of concept in the circular circularity system. And we've, you know, created a fully functional circular system for, for polyester to become RPET. Yet we're still cycling a toxic synthetic fiber and I think it's synthetic clothes now account for 60% of the global apparel industry's annual fiber consumption and 35% of microplastics in the ocean. This is, you know, from everywhere from cutting, dyeing to finishing. And then obviously we all know in the washing of our clothes at home, that's a huge proportion of microplastics being sent into the oceans. And so it's just unfortunate that, you know, plastics were the lowest hanging fruit and we've, we have it within our grasp to stop virgin polyester utilization. And there isn't even really a price differential anymore in RPET from most sourcing options, but they definitely still get in the way of a functional circular system. Yeah, I think it's important to to think about the limitations of our current successes and opportunities. You know, we do have a more functional system to recycle and cycle polyester. And it's unfortunate that polyester is the fiber, but I think that there are lessons learned. Like at least we have an example, whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was no example. So it's at least a model that we can build off of. And there are a lot of things that go into that, into the system of any circular textile. You, the textile or the products have to be collected from the consumer 
then they have to be sorted based on their fiber makeup. And then once they're sorted, you have to have the appropriate technology that can recycle or regenerate that specific fiber. And as we just talked about, you have to have the market for the recycled or regenerated product. So there are a lot of places in the system where there can be gaps that we need to fill. Um, One of them that we've talked about before, but not yet in this conversation is where customer education comes into play in enabling a circular system. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. There's a couple of important points you points you brought up, Lauren. And one, I, I think it's really important to just stress the need for brands or all actors, all actors in the textile industry to act together when trying to create circular solutions. Because I think we really see that you can, we can't, can no longer operate in silos and not not consider kind of other actors and how they may influence the creation of some of these circular technologies that we need to advance circularity in the industry. And when we're talking about customer education specifically, I think it's important to remember that I think it's about 30% of the carbon impact or the greenhouse gas emissions from a uh, clothing item take place during the use phase. And so customer education is going to be critical moving forward and trying to eliminate or not eliminate, but reduce climate impact of clothing. So I I think one thing is educating customers on how to take care of their garments to how to launder them. And then also to educate them on the importance of taking back clothing. And And I think we've seen I mean, H&M is probably the classic example of, of them, of a brand incentivizing customers to bring their clothing back by giving them a coupon. I think it was 5 or $10 for their next purchase. And we can, you know, talk about H&M and the merits of H&M and the pros and cons of H&M all day long. But I think it's one example of a brand hoping or trying to educate their consumer on why or the importance of bringing back their, their clothing. Yeah, I love that we're talking about examples of take-back programs and where we see brands creating partnership with their customers. I think in the circular system, there's an opportunity to treat our customers differently than we have in this traditional take-make-sell-use-waste model where customers are consumers. And in a circular system, customers are partners. It's not that it's the customer's responsibility to be the most sustainable actor in the system, but it's that the circular system can't act unless we're in partnership with our customers. It requires our customers to have an awareness of what they do with their products once they no longer need them. And so that really excites me about the possibilities for the way that we talk to our customers and engage with them more broadly in sustainability, but it really starts in the circularity space. I think moving all the way from demand to supply is an important tandem conversation for the industry to be having. It's kind of going back to how hard it is to reinvent an entire supply chain. And for a long time, brands have been looking at their supply chain like, what are you going to bring to me? I mean, I heard it just the other day in a conference you know, a a major circularity player basically saying, you know, tell your supply chain, I'm not taking plastic anymore, bring me something else. And it really is just this like comply or die mentality about our supply chain that you can just say no, and they should 
get you where you need to go. If you want to see a hundred percent conversion over from synthetic fibers and, you know, what was Levi's goal by 2025, their cotton to organic cotton, or if you're moving from polyester to RPET, that that's on your supply chain to bring that to you. But really it should be on the brands to take responsibility for their supply chain, work on retrofitting their supply chain instead of the opposite. Yeah. I mean, partnership with vendors, with everyone throughout your value chain, including the supply side is super important. And obviously there are brands that are partnering with their vendors in a deep way. I'm curious if there are any partnership models that either of you have seen recently that you're really excited about. Yeah. So uh, working at a supplier, I've definitely seen over the last few years an increase in interest from brands um, wanting to be more collaborative and less transactional in our relationship. And one brand uh, sticks out in particular who uh, recently released their 2030 sustainability strategy where they identified uh, wanting to have 100% of their products be circular. So they approached us as one of their preferred partners, wanting us to help them realize this goal. And they actually offered to support us or partner financially to help them develop a new kind of circular product. That's really interesting. It's funny because I, I feel like that level and depth of partnership we talk a lot about, but that's what the industry needs. And it's really positive to hear examples of brands wanting to develop partnerships like that with their suppliers. And because as, as we've been talking about, we really all have a part to play. It requires all of us to create a truly circular system. There's really an enormous amount of variability at this point. There's no silver bullet. There's no one business model that is the way to go if you're wanting to start a circular program at your brand. You know, a lot of brands have all of their circularity initiative housed within their own business vertically. Other brands are contracting still out to, you know, Yurtle, who builds an entire site that mimics your site, but it's a completely different process for their product to go through before it gets in the hands of customers. So there's really just so many ways for a brand to approach circularity. And as we know, you know, there's more costly ways and there's lower hanging fruit. And really at this point, it's just testing the market and seeing what your customer really wants and needs. Yes, that is such an important point. So I'll just take the opportunity to shamelessly plug some work that we did a few years ago in partnership with Outer Known, who I know has been doing a lot of work in general in the sustainability space, but was really looking to support the industry at the time back in 2017 with a systems analysis of the circular system. And really the goal of that project and a lot of the work that we did was identifying these various access points. Because like you said, there are a lot of ways to start or to get started in the circular system. There's no like one correct, right approach. It's really just about putting one foot in front of the other and and moving in the direction. So I'm excited about, you know, where the industry is now in terms of so many people wanting to move in circularity. And I hope that, you know, more tools like ours, like the circular roadmap proliferates to give more brands in various sizes, whether you're a large organization or a smaller organization, opportunities to engage in the circular system in a way that makes sense with where your business model is today and then growing those competencies as you're expanding your circularity strategy and activities. And definitely look to other industries. I mean, you can look at the car resale industry for certified pre-owned, or you can look at electronics 
um, there's a lot of inspiration we can still gain from other industries to pull into the fashion industry. And then there's so many brands that are just proving really successful models, partnerships with ThreadUp, like Reformation's partnership with ThreadUp, or whether it's a focus on your fibers and really communicating the value of different fibers to your customers, like Eileen Fisher does. There's just a lot of lessons for us to learn from what's being done in the industry already. And this is all the way from small brands to large brands. So today, I think we've done a pretty good job of kind of reviewing the circular system as a whole, what's happened over the last five to six years, and then the important innovations or partnerships programs that we've seen happen uh, throughout 2019 and 2020. But that conversation has been really focused on mitigating the environmental impacts of our industry. And there's a really big gap in talking about the social considerations as it relates to circularity. This is really where systems thinking comes in for the circular system. And I am curious, as we link social and environmental considerations in circularity, you know, we said we have these placeholders and all of these models for the social side, but I don't know that a lot of people in the industry are putting enough energy toward what those placeholders are going to become. What do you think those are going to expand to in a more tangible, visible, measurable way for the industry? I've been thinking a lot about that in like a, a digestible way to really consider environmental and social impacts as it relates to our sustainability approaches. And the most concrete way I've found to think about it is that we need to consider circularity as our economic model, away from a linear economic model of take, make, sell, which I'm adding, use and waste to our circular model um, in which materials are circulating through a system. So our economic model doesn't necessarily dictate the human rights or social considerations. It's really just like the shape of our system. How are our resources flowing through an economy? So if we think about it from that perspective, for me, I see so many opportunities to expand the placeholders. There are not only opportunities to expand from our current social considerations, even just from a really basic perspective of looking at our social compliance model in traditional sustainability realms into a circularity framework. I have a lot of criticisms of social compliance, so I don't necessarily think that that's the right tool to expand, but that's a really easy shift that we could make as an industry as opposed to having these placeholders to say like, well, what would it look like to apply a social responsibility framework to our circular economic model? The biggest opportunity though that I think there is for our frameworks for circularity is really expanding this concept of um, responsible purchasing practices. And what does it mean to have a robust partnership program with your vendors that is seeking to enable not only circular and sustainable practices, but also practices that are upholding human rights. If we're, you know, working in a relationship in which we're assuming that everyone has the best intentions, then I think it's safe to say we don't necessarily need to be in a model for an industry that is punitive or like this comply or die model that you were talking about earlier, Kat. I'm really looking instead about like, how are we enabling each other brand to vendor, manufacturing partner to brand, brand to customer, how are we enabling each other to behave more sustainably and in better partnership so that we're all able to thrive in a circular economy? Yeah, circularity really inherently requires a systems lens. 
Um, there's no way to look at the circular system in bites and pieces. You have to see all social and environmental variables all together at the same time. So over time, we'll be discussing all of this and how complicated these systems are beyond the circularity industry for a more regenerative and equitable system. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Unspun is produced by Cambridge House and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake. Cover art by Estate Design Studio. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.